read uh, an interview in The Guardian earlier this week with the editor of The Economist, Sandy Minton Beddoes, the first woman editor of the magazine, uh, talking about how important digital was for the future of The Economist, uh, and in particular saying she didn't want The Economist to be like grandpa dancing at the disco. Well, today's guest speaker <laughs> is the man charged with making sure The Economist dance moves are as cutting edge as they can be. Uh, Tom Standage is deputy editor of The Guardian, but, uh, The Economist, sorry. Uh, uh, Dodged a bullet there. Former, former writer of The Guardian. Um, but as deputy editor, he's responsible for uh, The Economist's digital strategy and the development of uh, digital products, as they're now called. Uh, and he's going to be talking to us about um, news in the digital age and the place of the economist in particular. So, Tom, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Hello again, everyone. Um, I thought I'd talk about this by coming at three big um, and related questions or challenges that face not just The Economist, but all news organisations at the moment. And they are tangled up, but I will sort of go from one to the next. The first is, how should we as news organisations cope with or respond to the evident failure of the display ad-based model? Um, lots of news organisations were founded on the basis that you could make a big audience come and visit your site and then stick ads in front of them and make money that way. And for various reasons, that doesn't seem to be working. The second uh, big challenge is how do you respond to the advent of distributed content platforms, which is in fact where most of the readers seem to be, or viewers, or however you want to put it, and what should the right uh, approach to those platforms be, and that's something that we're all grappling with as well. And then the third question is, um, it does look like there is a looming shakeout coming in both old and new. I mean, the shakeouts were going on in the old media for a while, but the new uh, VC-funded news organisations seem to be having problems as well now, which is not unrelated to the first two things. Um, and how might that play out and what should we do about it? Um, so I think those are things that I grapple with every day and that you are all grappling with in some form as well. I should preface my remarks by saying I am not claiming that The Economist has all the answers, although we do have a model that seems to be more immune to some of these problems than those of other publishers. But I should also preface my remarks by saying that um, I am aware that... Um, it is not a model that is very easily copied. And this is why, in part, we're very happy to explain what our model is, because it's really, <laughs> you know, it's not like other people are going to be able to go, oh, right, we'll do that. I mean, best of luck to you if you want to do it. And, you know, I'm also very happy to admit where I've nicked business models from other people. So in the past year, for example, we've rebooted our video strategy, essentially stealing the strategy from Vice. Um, and in particular, the the sponsored strand it did called The Creators Project. And I looked at that and thought, hang on a minute, that looks very similar to what we could be doing, except for the video part. Um, so we did that. And I saw Josh Tarangle at Vice just before Christmas. And I said, I stole that model from you. And he said, well, when I was editor of Business Week, I was ripping you off all the time. So I guess we're even. Um, so, so that was good. So I think, I think you know, knowing who you should be, um, you know, like Steve Jobs said, great artists copy and geniuses steal. Knowing who you should be stealing from is a really important part of this business. And I don't think anyone can steal the entire model of The Economist, although various American weeklies have tried. Um, and I'm also not saying it's a template for everything. Um, anyway, let's start with the first of those questions, which is the demise of the ad-supported um, display ad model. And the difficulty is, 
there are several problems. This is a horrible business to be in already, um, but it's, it's only going to get more horrible. And the problem is that uh, for a long time the rhetoric has been, well, yes, this is a horrible business to be in now, but it's going to get better. And the reason it's going to get better, and this was the first sort of problem, I think, with this model, is that CPMs were going down, so the cost you can charge for your ads were going down because there was more and more and more inventory. There was no scarcity. Um, and then CPMs were going down on mobile phones even more because you can put fewer ads on phones, people are less likely to pay attention to them on phones, they don't want to click on them, and so on. Um, so CPMs seem to be going down, but what the industry had always said, and what publishers had always believed, was that in the future, CPMs would start to go up again. And the reason they would go up again was that the ability to target ads towards people would get better. And this would mean they'd be more relevant and people would be more likely to click on them. Uh, and therefore you'd be able to charge more for them. However, at the same time, there was, a, there was an inherent contradiction in this view because essentially the industry was saying we're going to get much better at targeting ads and people aren't going to notice. And in fact, what happened was people noticed and said, wait a minute, this is getting spooky. I go and look up you know, some product on some website and then everywhere I go on the internet, I'm being chased around by adverts. And this is called retargeting and you, know, you drop a cookie. Um, so I go and look at, I don't know, um, I go to the Mercedes-Benz website and I, and I go, what's that, what's that nice car I just saw? It turns out it was an AMG GT, it's a very nice car. My wife said, I totally want one of those. And when, when your wife says, that's the car she wants you to, and you go, oh, okay. So I went and looked it up and um, as a result, everywhere I go on the internet now, I get ads for, for Mercedes uh, cars of various descriptions. Um, and I know how this works, and, um, but basically the better these the better the targeting gets, the spookier people find it and the more likely they are to rebel against it. And that's what we've seen with ad blockers. Um, Ads are out of control. Um, they are spooky because they target you. They use up your data allowance. They slow down your desktop computer. They pop out and annoy you. And so, you know, if you want to use, um, for many years, I used like a three or four year old Mac at home in my study. And it was my wife's old Mac. She does lots of Photoshop and stuff. So she usually has like the latest model so she can do Photoshop and video. And I get the cast offs because I'm just doing text, you know, and text is slow and easy. Except that even a text based site, uh, news site, is covered in megabytes of, um, of video ads and, and so on. And so the only way to make that Mac usable was to put an ad blocker on it. Otherwise, it was just too slow. Um, so part of it's tracking, part of it, you know, there are lots of different reasons, but, um, but essentially that is making things even harder. So the advertisers have come back and said, okay, um, we think there's something fishy going on here. We're buying all these ads and people aren't seeing them. So they've started enforcing these viewability requirements where ads have got to be, they can't, you can't just serve the ad onto a page. It's actually got to be seen by the <laughs> shock horror by the reader. Um, and, uh, you know, so if you serve an ad to the bottom of a page that they never scroll down, they'll never see it. Um, and then it's got to be, it's got to be, you know, viewed for at least five seconds and it's got to at least 85% of it. So the ad agencies are getting stricter and stricter and as well they might. Um, and the publishers are therefore able to charge for a smaller and smaller proportion of their ads because actually a lot of them were never being seen anyway. Uh, and then a whole lot of them are being blocked and, you know, estimates for this, the number of people who are using ad blockers vary, but it's kind of 10 to 40% as far as anyone can tell. Ad blockers are spreading onto phones and in fact they make much more sense on phones. They're brilliant on phones because things load much faster and you're not wasting your data allowance on horrible video ads. And then as a publisher, and you've probably had this problem as well, um, how many of you have had this problem? So you're using your own publisher's website one day and some horrible ad pops up 
and like a survey pops out of it or um, you know or you're mousing around kind of vaguely near it but not actually going over it and it kind of expands to fill the whole screen um, and you go what the hell's this and you screen grab it and you send it send it to your head of adults and go there's something funny going on I've just seen this survey or this pop-up thing and they go oh that's terrible that shouldn't be happening we'll check with the agency so they go and check with the agency and then it comes back oh yeah there was a mistake the agency accidentally sent the wrong creative and it's like, yeah, right. Because this mistake, I don't know about you, but it happens like every month. I mean, it's, you know, there's always some agency somewhere sending you the wrong creative. Another thing that publishers have tried to do is they've tried to um, impose limits on, you know, the, the, the ads aren't allowed to do this, and they're not allowed to do that, and they can only be this size, you know, so many megabytes or whatever. And guess what? The, uh, the ads amazingly seem to break those rules quite often as well. But we as individual publishers really can't do a great deal about it. We can sit there and say, well... This really isn't cricket, folks, but we still like the money, so all right then. Um, and as a result, it's just getting sort of more and more ridiculous. The ads are getting heavier and heavier and more intrusive and slowing things down and just driving more and more people to using ad blockers. Um, so that's all bad. And this is one of the reasons why Google AMP is so interesting. Google AMP is often taken to be Google's response to Facebook instant articles. Um, it's not really. It's Google's response to ad blocking. So AMP is a lightweight HTML format, which um, you know, means that pages load much faster. And essentially, it involves Google saying, if you want to make a page, um, and they're favoring AMP pages in their search engine and in various other places, and other people are using them too. So if you use Nuzzle, how many people here use Nuzzle? Um, Okay, well, the rest of you should all download Nuzzle because it makes Twitter, makes Twitter much more useful. It basically finds the best stuff in, in Twitter for you. Um, but Nuzzle, for example, loads pages as, as AMP pages. Anyway, the reason I'm going down this, um, this path with AMP is that um, pretty much the only company that can stand up to the advertisers is Google. And Google, as far as I can tell, is quite, you know, it's, it was unwilling to have the, uh, the, the sword and shield pressed into its hands to go out. <laughs> but essentially... Um, and they, they, when I've spoken to them about it, they've sort of said, well, you know, does it look like we're trying to grab a whole load of power here? Because in effect, they're acting as gatekeepers for what ads are and are not allowed on mobile pages. Um, but my position, and I'm sure that of many other publishers, is thank you very much, Google, because we couldn't stop this ourselves. But essentially, Google AMP bans nearly all kinds of modern ads uh, on mobile pages. It bans JavaScript altogether, so you can't do any kind of funny business. Um, and it's, it will allow Google to specify what sorts of ads will work on mobile pages. Now, it's, it, is, it is an open standard, so it's not quite as simple as Google dictates it. And, of course, Google has a very big dog in this fight because it owns you know, one of the big ad networks and is the biggest um, seller of um, online advertising. But um, it, it is ultimately, I think, doing publishers a favour because Google is going to stand between the hordes of... Of, um, of advertisers who are trying to get these things past us and um, they're ad tech people and ad tech is just, you know, you've probably all seen that chart of ad tech and the ecosystem and it's just this kind of baffling um, thousands of companies all serving things to each other which is also why ads take such a long time to load. Um, anyway, so thank God, you know, um, that, will, that will sort of potentially solve this problem as AMP becomes more widespread. But even so, you've got the problem that there, um, you've got falling CPMs on mobile ads and you've got less and less um, inclination of people to look at ads or to click them or even to allow them to make it onto their devices. So what that means is that the, the business model that, that um, a lot of people were pursuing uh, of build a big audience online and then stick ads in front of them um, 
instead of becoming a more attractive model over time, is becoming a less attractive model over time. And two data points here. Um, one is Huffington Post. So Huffington Post is an interesting publisher because it has that model, but it doesn't have to pay for a lot of its content because it has a, you know, an army of celebrities and volunteers and other people who write for it. Um, unlike most publishers, it doesn't need to pay for all of, of its articles. Um, and yet it doesn't make a profit. So it's one of the most heavily trafficked news sites. And when Verizon bought AOL, which owns... Huffington Post, one of the things that came out was that HuffPo was not making a profit, which is kind of scary if that's your business model, because if they can't make a profit, then, you know, God help the Guardian, which has the same model. Um, and then the, the mail online, similarly, uh, the most trafficked news site, uh, by some measures, um, is basically not profitable. Um, and they are spending a lot of money on photos, it has to be said. Every single page of theirs has a lot of photos on it. But again, if you've got that kind of volume and you can't make this model work, then people who've got a lot less volume are going to be in trouble. So it really doesn't look as though that model works. And that is contributing to the, um, I think, the sense of panic that um, what we thought was the, the internet model, which was you gave things away free and then made money on the advertising. Um, certainly with straightforward display advertising, there are a number of reasons to believe that, that that doesn't work. Where does the economist sit on this? Well, we kind of sit on the side, I won't say we sit on the side and laugh because um, you know, it, digital advertising is a, is a source of revenue for us. We make about 20 million pounds a year um, in, in online ad revenue, I think. So um, you know, it's, a, it's a, let's see what ads we get when we go to economist.com. Um, First, you get a massive pop-up saying, <laughs> saying subscribe, but this takes a million years to load because, yeah, here we go. So there we are. So let's make that go away. Now, this thing at the top is a billboard from Xerox, and these are really popular. Um, advertisers love these because they're so big. Um, <laughs> and uh, so there you go. And then you have the little, the little thing underneath from us saying, now, when I'm scrolling down, you can see it takes a while for this is a sticky ad at the top. And this is one of the things that we and lots of other publishers have had to do in order to ensure that the viewability of that ad is up there. So when we scroll, it doesn't, it doesn't go away right away, but it will now start to scroll up like that. So it's now obscured the masthead, which I don't think we ever saw, did we? Maybe we did. Oh, there's the masthead. Phew. Um, okay, so there. And then we've got another ad here from EY. And um, so, you know, there are ads on, on our site. And, uh, but the crucial thing is they are not... Um, our business model is mostly not based on that. So most of our revenue comes from our readers. Um, we're at about 65% reader revenue for the group. And that includes the Economist newspaper, but also the EIU and the other bits of the company. So actually, if you just look at the newspaper, the fraction of revenue from uh, subscribers is higher than that. Um, and the fraction of revenue for the group that's coming from old-fashioned display advertising is falling. Um, it's obviously falling in print like it is for everyone else, but it's, um, it's you know, at best flat online as well um, because there's just less and less interest from, um, from advertisers and they're also you know, driving harder, harder and harder bargains as a result of viewability. So um, if advertising, display advertising goes away altogether, um, we survive. We become much less profitable, but we still make a profit and we still survive. Um, so we're doing our best to sell other kinds of advertising uh, that aren't display advertising, as are lots of other publishers. Um, so a good example would be Quartz. Um, and Quartz is interesting because it was sort of set up to be, you know, what would The Economist look like if you started it today? Um, and so they do um, native advertising where some of the articles in their infinite scroll, here we go, are in fact 
adverts. So let's see if we can find one. Of course, they'll be carefully labelled so that you can distinguish between the adverts and the articles. So it'll be very clear when we get to one because it will be... Um, right, hang on a minute. That's an ad for their own newsletter. Oh, we haven't we haven't been shown one. Okay, let's go to a let's go to a let's go to a story and then scroll underneath and we'll get the info. Uh, so there is a full width ad, and there's a what they call a bulletin, which is a sort of advertorial way you you know they tell you about stuff. So let's see what that looks like. Here we go. So this is an advertorial sponsor content. There's the label. Um, so this is the kind of thing that they're doing, rather than rely on old-fashioned MPUs and skyscrapers and all that kind of stuff. Um, again, it doesn't look like they're actually profitable. So they've got a model that doesn't depend on display ads, but um, it's unclear at this stage, and there's talk of, you know, are they for sale and, and this kind of thing. And the uh, people I know in the court's office joke darkly about one day when we're all working for Bloomberg, um, because, you know, there aren't that many profitable media companies who can buy everyone else. Um, anyway, so... That's the kind of thing they're doing. Um, the most interesting model um, that gets away from the ad-supported um, you know, MPU approach is, of course, BuzzFeed. Um, and if you go to BuzzFeed, you don't see any, whoops, you don't see any of those boring old-fashioned ads. Um, BuzzFeed has a much cleverer model where, um, again, you've got a mixture of content, uh, some of which is articles and some of which is adverts. Um, so, uh, where is one? Here we are. This one, insanely simple fridge and freezer hacks. This is, in fact, a sponsor post, or whatever they call it, uh, promoted content from Curry's PC World. Um, so, essentially, so again, it's a native presentation because you're mixing up um, articles with ads in the guise of articles, which are coming out of the same CMS. And uh, the clever thing about this is that um, if you can get people to share this um, just the same way that you get people to share the other stories, then it will travel very happily. And BuzzFeed's really interesting, and this takes me to my second point, which is the advent of distributed content platforms. BuzzFeed is interesting as a pioneer of this new model where you don't rely on display ads. Although this looks surprisingly like display ads on the right, doesn't it? It's not. It's trying to get you to... It's just, it's just the, um, it's the... It's the Curry's PC World Facebook... Um, and Twitter feeds, which they have filled with ads. So it's not actually ads on them. It's not actually ads from, uh, from BuzzFeed. Um, anyway, so they've got, this, they've got this model. But um, the interesting thing about BuzzFeed is they get 70% of their impressions off their own platform. Um, and the numbers really are eye-popping, and I wish I could remember them. But um, uh, essentially, they get you know, lots of video views on YouTube and, and Facebook, um, and so on and so on. So their actual visits to their own site as a fraction of impressions is only 30% of them. Um, and so they have, they have managed to make a virtue of the fact that most people want to read stuff in places other than your own website. Um, so if we go back to the, uh, the ad model, you could say that the BuzzFeed model, and I think this is a fair way of putting it, that BuzzFeed is an ad agency with a news organisation wrapped around the outside of it. Um, and in a sense, what happens is that the, the news organisation produces the content that brings in the audience, so that's the listicles and all the rest of it. Um, and then if you've got people following you and reading those articles and sharing them and etc., then they are much more likely to stumble upon the 
advert posts which you've mixed in with the editorial and that is essentially the BuzzFeed model and they do that in video as well so you follow them for funny cat videos and then it turns out that funny video about tricks you can do with a magnet is something to do with innovation from GE or, or whatever um, so it's a very very clever model Vice used to have this model and so Vice has an internal agency called Virtue ha ha um, and again, you use the editorial content to build the audience, and then you can slip in this stuff from the sponsors. Um, Vice has moved much more towards a model where it's paid to make content by other people. So it's, it's focused much more on video, and um, it's getting much more of its revenue from the likes of HBO commissioning them to make, to make uh, video. So they've become much more of a sort of traditional TV production company. And this is, a, a, in fact, a trend across the industry. We're seeing, um, you know... I think it's Michael Wolf who says that the future of the internet is TV. We're seeing more and more um, companies, and BuzzFeed's another example. So Jonah Peretti of BuzzFeed has just moved to LA. And I've been to LA on, on business for the first time this year to talk to, you know, not just because there are, there are lots of tech firms bringing up there because the Bay Area has become such a nightmare to live, but uh, so Venice Beach is much nicer. Um, but also there are lots and lots of media companies there. And it's because news publishers are getting much more interested in video and, um, and in the kind of old-fashioned TV and movie industry than they used to be. And part of the reason they are is the stubborn refusal of advertisers to move their advertising dollars from TV to digital. So we've all seen those charts, the Mary Meeker ones, that look at how much time people spend on different platforms versus how much money advertisers put there. And we've all seen the disparity between mobile use and mobile spending. And that's always taken to mean that you know, there's about to be a deluge of mobile ad money. Um, and it's going to go away from print, and that's definitely happening. And it's going to go away from TV, and that doesn't seem to be happening quite so much. So um, suddenly, all the internet companies are like, right, we need to do TV. So um, that's what you know, BuzzFeed is doing, and we've, we've certainly started making more, more video as well. Our version of this, of this model is um, Economist Films, and as I said, I nicked the model for this from, from Vice. So Vice has three sources of revenue. Um, it runs from its video. It runs pre-roll ads on some platforms like YouTube before its videos, so there's sort of straightforward advertising, but no one likes pre-roll. Um, secondly, it makes money on series that are sponsored, um, but where the sponsor has no influence over the content. So uh, the video is editorially independent. So for example, you do a food series called Munchies, and I remember there was a, there was a whole series, I think the second series, and the, the series looked into the question, why is food in the north of England so bad? And in fact, is it true that it's all so bad? And they went in search of food in the north of England that was not bad. And it was quite a funny series. Um, and that was sponsored by... Um, who is it sponsored by? Deliveroo or someone like that. You know, one of the kind of food delivery companies. So that's the kind of model they have. So we've got a similar thing going on here. So this um, this film, The Disruptors, which we've just released today, this is from a um, uh, a series on guess what companies, you know, uh, industries being disrupted. Um, and th that series we have made, and um, the sponsor for that series is EY Ernst and Young. Um, and uh, so you can see that you know. You will get EY, so you can see with EY. So you get they get some branding around this, but they don't get to influence the um, the content. Um, and we've just simply taken that model from Creators Project from Vice. Uh, we make sort of you know four or five series a year, and we get a, a sponsor on. So we did another series called FutureWorks, um, which was sponsored by Salesforce. And FutureWorks is a series about. So there's, there's Disruptors, and then FutureWorks down here, sponsored by Salesforce. So this is the jobs of tomorrow being done today. So we looked at drone pilots, esports, athletes, people trying to make synthetic meat, uh, people building bionics, 
and um, the new space startup movement. And this is sponsored by Salesforce, but actually, as far as we're concerned, it's, you know, it's editorially independent video, um, but they get to associate themselves with the awesome new things that are being depicted in these, in these films. So that is an example of, a, you know, of an alternative model. Anyway, so Vice um, pursued that one. That's the second source of revenue. And the third source of revenue is this direct commissioning. Um, and that's what BuzzFeed is trying to go for as well. And we are also talking to commissioners um, about producing longer form video on exactly that model. Anyway, on to distributed content, distributed platforms. So um, this is kind of a reaction to... Uh, and the current debate and the Emily Bell piece about you know how Facebook was eating eating publishing and so on, um, or eating the news business, is sort of a reaction to the first problem. So if you can't make money from ads on your platform because you can't police the advertisers properly, and no one no one really wants to go to your website, they want to they want to um, go to Facebook, then maybe Facebook will save your bacon. And maybe you could put all of your content onto Facebook as instant articles, so you upload everything, and then Facebook will find advertisers for you and give you a generous enough split that you'd actually make more money <laughs> for people reading your stuff on Facebook than you would on your own site. And then maybe we're all okay. And maybe we found a way that everything could just go on the way it was. Phew. And you wouldn't believe how many um, Future of News events I've been to where where someone, you know, where, where basically the subtext of every discussion is, if only there was a way we could all just go on to the, you know, back to the way things were before. Um, and it's just not going to happen. Anyway, the latest version of that meme is maybe, the in, maybe Facebook will save us. And this is predicated on lots and lots of ifs, which you really don't want to stack up. The first is, well, maybe you could if you're, you know, if you're the Washington Post or the Guardian, you could put all your content on Facebook and... Um, and you really would get a lot more views because people do seem to engage with instant articles a lot more. And maybe you could, you know, maybe Facebook or you or together you could sell ads and maybe the split of the revenue would be enough and maybe that would cover your costs. Now that's a lot of babies and I don't think it's true. But let's imagine it was true. That would still be a terrible position to be in. And the reason is that even if the, the numbers work today, there'd be nothing stopping Facebook saying tomorrow, well, actually, you know, we're taking 50%. We'd like it to be 70% now. So you would be at their, their mercy with your business model, which would not be a good place to be. But also, particularly because of this debate, and actually, we have, had, we have a very good relationship with Facebook, and I have no problem with it. But you can imagine a scenario where um, you are writing, you, know, you want to publish an article saying how Facebook needs to sack Peter Thiel from its board immediately because of what he's doing to Gawker, and it's, a, you know, it's an affront to free speech and the First Amendment and all the rest of it. And Facebook says, we think that this article violates the terms and conditions of our platform. Um, and what are you going to do about that? So, so um, you know, in practice, uh, Facebook has not done things like this, but you can imagine... They've just done it in Israel. Hmm? They've just done it in Israel. Israel is and what have they, they just banned coverage of? About Facebook, from instant articles. It's no, in India as well. No, no, it, wasn't it wasn't even an instant article, it was a post. Right, there you go. So, so that is exactly the, the reason why you don't want to be... So I mean, there's an old kind of you know, rule of thumb for uh, if you run your own business. You don't want more than half your business to come from one of your customers, and you don't want any one of your suppliers to account for more than 50% of your supplies. Because if, you, if you're in either of those positions, then you're very vulnerable to the failure of one or other of those uh, partners. Um, so what should we do about this? Because essentially the audience is out there. It's, it's on Facebook, it's on Twitter, it's on Snapchat, it's on you know, all of these other platforms. Um, what do we do about it? Well, I, I think we can't not go onto those platforms. Um, and so, so each publisher has to work out what the right 
approach to each of those platforms is, and that means whether you go onto it at all, uh, what content you put there, whether you make new content specifically for that platform, and in particular, how you allocate your um, resources between those platforms. Um, and we have just gone through this exact um, exercise. So we, a year ago, we scaled up our social team. We had two people, and we went from two to 10. Um, and we just kind of did as much as we could on as many platforms as we could. And after six months, we then had a look at where we were getting the most bang for the buck. And the result was this chart here. And this, whoops, oh dear. Oh, you can kind of tap this trackpad. That's why it keeps being a bit mad. Okay, so this was done for us by our chief data scientist. And we actually have the analytics, the data people sitting in the, um, on the same desk as some of the social people. Um, and they're all just mixed up together. And they literally, you know, we can course correct on Facebook day by day. So the, um, uh, you know, James, uh, one of the data people will say, I've noticed we're getting, you know, 30% less engagement on link posts than we compared to yesterday. I think this is why. Um, try doing this, this, and this and see if it goes up. And so we really can, with, you know, if you've got the analytics people sitting right next to the social people, you can um, adjust very quickly. Anyway, this was a longer term thing. So we looked at six months of output. And we looked at how um, many posts we had made for lots of different platforms. We looked at how fast those platforms were growing. And we looked at how many engagements we were getting. Uh, sorry, how many impressions we were getting on those posts on those platforms. Um, and, uh, and this allowed us to draw some interesting conclusions I'll come to in a minute. But um, just to outline what our response is, this is not necessarily what everyone's response is, but our approach, because we're a primarily subscription-based publication, is that the value of these uh, platforms is that we can use them to encourage people to sample our journalism. So we can put our journalism in front of people and say, here's some stuff we've done, um, come and have a look. And some of that is stuff they could see on those platforms. So we might put a video on Twitter or Facebook, and you can watch the video. And so what we're trying to do there is change people's perception of The Economist. Um, very often, people either haven't heard of it, or they have, and they think it's for people who work on Wall Street or in the city. They think it's just about financial services and economics, and they don't recognize it as a newspaper for the world. You know, We only have six pages on finance and economics. Most of The Economist is actually political coverage. Um, yes, through the lens of economics, but essentially it's a newspaper for the world. It's, it's not what people think it is. So that film series I just showed you, uh, Future Works, was you know part of the reason for us doing that series editorially is we wanted to associate ourselves, particularly among young people just going into the workforce, with innovation, with you know trend spotting, so on and so on. That was not a series about economics and about finance. It was a series about technology. Um, we did another series last year called Global Compass that looked at sort of difficult policy issues. Uh, and again, it was not about finance and economics. It was a, it was a, a political policy series. Um, anyway, so our um, approach with all these platforms is to encourage sampling. And um, we don't put very much actual content on those platforms. In the case of video, we do. But when it comes to articles, we put links to articles instead of actual articles. We're about to start putting a few articles on um, on Facebook instant articles, and we put a few into Apple News each week as well. But it is about 20 articles a week. It is not 200 a day, unlike certain other publishers. Um, so the idea is that there's enough that you can sample what we do, um, and we mix the, those posts in with links that take you to our actual sites, which we own, so our own website and our own apps, where we then invite you to subscribe. And those, you know, the, those owned properties of ours allow, again, a certain amount of sampling with a paywall, but then ultimately we are going to ask you to pay. Uh, and we've always done this ever since the 90s. We've always had a paywall of one kind or another. We've never 
said that you can have everything free. We've varied what you get, um, but we've always had a paywall of some kind or another. So for us, this is all about, uh, we have a metered paywall, so we can tweet you know, every article we produce. And if you click on, the, uh, on a link, you'll be able to read the article. But as soon as you try and read another article, we'll invite you to register on our site. And then you can read two more articles. And then if you've read those two, then we'll say, OK, now you have to subscribe. Or you can come back next week and you'll get your three free articles again. So that's the, that's the kind of model we have. So for us, it's about driving people to our own platforms. So what's happening here is we looked at how many posts we had made for, um, for all these different platforms that we're on. And you can see that we, we actually made more than 50% of the posts for the, the Twitter sub-account. So we, our, our main Twitter account has, what is it, 12 million followers, something like that now? 14 million, something like that. Um, and we also have all these sub-accounts like the Britain account or the US account or the culture account and so on. We were spending a lot of time writing tweets for those. But if you look at how many impressions that was generating, it was essentially zero over here. <laughs> um, and this was because we started off in a very sort of egalitarian way, which is like we're going to feed all of the Twitter feeds with, you know, five tweets for every relevant piece or something like that. So we were, we were making a lot of effort to produce tweets that almost no one was seeing. Um, meanwhile, we were only doing about, what's this, an eighth of our... Um, an eighth of our effort going into making Facebook posts, but that was far and away producing the most impressions. Um, these transparent boxes on top are, if you assume a linear rate of growth from the current follower numbers that we have on those platforms now, and they are pretty, you know, follower numbers are monotonic, they never go down, right? Because no one, when people stop using your platform will die, they, they still, they're still followers. So the follower number you can actually predict quite easily. Um, so we could see that, um, that's probably how many impressions we'll get in a year's time. Um, but, but it's the bulk of the impressions that we're getting now. Um, and then we looked at Twitter. This is how much we're getting now. So these posts that we're writing here for the main app, the Economist account, are generating this much. And then we're hardly doing anything on LinkedIn, but suddenly, boom. So LinkedIn has suddenly become an interesting platform to, um, to publishers. We were at, you know, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand followers last September. We got to a million at Christmas, and we're at two million now. Um, so that's suddenly very interesting, growing very fast, which is why we think it will be the second most important platform to us by the end of this year. Um, so this sort of cost-benefit analysis told us we needed to stop writing tweets for the sub-accounts and just retweet the stuff on the main account onto them. That immediately gives us, frees up 50% of our tweet writing or post-writing capacity for other things. Um, so another area that we think is going to grow a great deal is Line. Line is a messaging app used in Asia. Um, and it's very interesting because it's quite publisher friendly. Uh, we have a lot of beautiful visual content that we can put on it. Um, but it's also a practice for messenger apps like Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp, which don't really allow publishers on them yet. Uh, but when they do, we have had a very nice trial run on, on Line. Um, so this is our version of what we should do on distributed content platforms, and we're looking at lots of other platforms as well. Um, but you can see that you know Tumblr. So Tumblr is kind of pretty marginal there. We should what we've actually said with Tumblr is we're going to, and same with Pinterest, we're going to have one more go at it. Um, you know, really get, have an intensive go at it. But if we can't make it work. Um, in another couple of months, then we'll just sort of say, okay, we're not going to update that one anymore. We need to pick our battles, and we need to decide where to deploy our, um, our forces, as it were. Anyway, so this is our version of, um, of, of how we use 
uh, distributed platforms is, is to drive sampling. We haven't, we're not going to go all in on instant articles. We're just going to have a limited number of articles there. Um, but I think this whole question of, you know, why are you on these platforms? Uh, do you really want them to be the main source of revenue? Is that a world you really want to end up in? I think is a, is a very good question. Um, and then the third question is this sort of shakeout question. Um, oh, just very quickly on that previous one. This is an example of a piece of content that doesn't exist except for social. So the social team, um, one of the features we have is on this day, and we do a... Um, we make a version of this card for different platforms. Um, and this is one of the things the social team has been doing, which is, which is making, um, making content and then optimizing it for different platforms. And I like to call this sort of social optimization rather than making social platform-specific content. Um, if you go too far down the route of making unique content for each platform, then you're in trouble again because you are devoting a lot of, of energy making something that you can't kind of reuse elsewhere. So ideally, you want to have quote of the day and fact of the day or whatever the or video of the day, whatever it is, and you want to make that content work for you on lots and lots of different platforms. So that's, those are the sorts of formats that we're, we're looking for and that we use. So you'll see a version of this online, but online images have to be square. It's kind of quite Instagram-y. Um, so this is just an example of, of how not everything that we promote on social is necessarily an, an article from the print edition or, an, or a web article. It can, be, it can be things we've built specifically to increase engagement on those social platforms. But that means when we do post links that go back to our own properties, we've got a bigger audience and a more engaged audience. Um, okay, and then finally on the, on the shakeout, the, um, uh, obviously, you know, old line publishers have been in trouble for ages and essentially as a direct result of the ending of their advertising monopolies. So we all had these nice, well, we didn't all, but um, lots of publishers had local advertising monopolies in print, which came to an end, um, thanks to the internet. Thanks, internet. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we're familiar with that story. You know, lots of newspapers, lots of towns that used to have three newspapers have one newspaper or zero newspapers. Um, what's interesting now is that the new uh, digital-only startups, uh, like the Huffington Post or Quartz or, um, or whoever, um, are in trouble too. And they have quite a lot, in a lot of cases, they have VC money behind them. Um, but even so, um, there's a limit to how long that will keep them going. And there's a limit to how much their VC backers are prepared to, um, to wait to see if the model works. And so they are actually being caught by exactly the same problem that, that the traditional publishers are, which is that the ad-supporting model that they, they uh, the, the ad-supported model that they're pursuing um, doesn't seem to be working. And they have a, a, a less acute version of the problem than we old-timers do, firstly because they have the cushion of VC money, um, and secondly because they don't have the cost bases that the old publishers do. So they don't have pension funds, and they don't have printing presses to run, and you know, they don't have those legacy costs. But ultimately, even if you take those, um, those costs away, the problem is that producing um, news content and putting it up and expecting display ads to, to cover the cost, or even these sort of new sponsorship models, you know, people have been asking questions about whether, whether BuzzFeed is making as much money as, as we thought they were. Um, there is uh, clearly a lot of uncertainty there, and we've started to see the beginning of consolidation, um, you know, GigaOM and Recode to, to uh, news webs, uh, tech news websites. Tech news websites tend to be at the bleeding edge of things because um, they tend to have the techiest, you know, people working for them, both in strategy and in um, and the development of new models and development of new features. Um, and so it's interesting that we're seeing a bit of a, uh, the beginnings of a shakeout there. 
Um, and it's clear that the trend is that the telcos buy everything. Um, so AOL and um, uh, AOL got acquired by Verizon. Uh, Verizon is the most likely buyer of Yahoo. Um, who else? Are, you know, Comcast are, are huge. They have. They are monopolies that are still there. Uh, the advertising monopolies that newspapers had are not still there, but the broadband monopolies that um, those companies have are still very lucrative, thank you. Um, and also, they are increasingly attractive partners to tech firms because tech firms really want to get into TV all of a sudden. And guess what? Comcast and Verizon and that lot and you know Disney are, are in TV. Um, so we're seeing more and more of these um, investments and partnerships and straightforward takeovers of um, new pure play digital uh, news organizations and media companies by old line media companies. And that, I think, is the end game. I think that's what happens. Um, and maybe Quartz does end up with Bloomberg. I don't know. It probably won't. But uh, uh, you know, Bloomberg is another um, you know, possible acquirer of some of these assets just because they're so insanely profitable. Um, but I think, I think the, uh, the obvious buyer, a lot of these things, is the, uh, is the big old media companies. Um, so we are standing aside from all of this. In the past year, since uh, I came and spoke here last, we have had a change to our corporate ownership, and uh, the FT Group sold, Pearson, the FT Group sold its 50% stake um, in, in The Economist and um, when the FT was sold to Nikkei, and uh, it was, we bought it basically by selling our building and buying back um, two-thirds of the outstanding shares, and the other third were bought by uh, one of our biggest shareholders, uh, John Elkan and Exor. Um, and uh, we're very happy with that outcome because it actually gives us uh, more editorial independence than we had before. We've also changed the articles of the company so that even though Exor owns, I think it's 40% or so of the shares, they can only vote 20% of the shares. So we actually have a stronger uh, position vis-a-vis uh, -vis any one shareholder exerting um, you know, undue influence. But actually, we're very happy with the uh, relationship we have with our shareholders at the moment. Um, so we are in the happy position of not being dependent on advertising and not having to worry about not being profitable. Um, and I realize that's a lucky position to be in. Um, and it allows us to, um, our circulation, the growing profitability of our circulation allows us to invest in new things. This is our first VR piece that we've just done, for example. Um, and this is a reconstruction of the Mosul Museum, which was destroyed by Islamic State in February 2015. And uh, essentially, if you take pictures of the um, objects that were in it, so, um, so this is what the actual museum looks like here. Um, I think it's going to, if I play it, yes, exactly. You can hear me talking about it. So I might tell myself to shut up. Right, OK, brilliant. So if you go inside the museum, you can see these, these sorts of things. Um, and this has, been this has been reconstructed by essentially crowdsourcing photographs from, um, from people who went to the museum. And you can recombine the photographs taken from lots of different angles to make a 3D model. And you can then put that model inside a, um, and here's another one. And you can put that model inside a virtual museum. So that's what we've done here. And the Lion of Mosul is probably the best one. Anyway, this is probably, a, you know, um, uh, this is, a, this is a, a fun example of how we are able to invest in new digital things. This is the photogrammetry process working in the background here. You can see this is how we reconstructed the Lion of Mosul. And this was done in conjunction with a non-profit group called Project Mosul. Um, anyway, uh, we are in the happy position of being able to invest in, uh, in new digital things because we are, um, we are still profitable and we are um, more editorially independent than we were. And I recognize that that's a very lucky position to be in. 
and I will leave it there. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Tom, thank you very much.